Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Good afternoon, Mike. How's it going? It's going pretty good, Sherry. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's a pretty crisp day here in Florida, one of the very few that we have in the year, but um, enjoying it. It's a nice change. Yeah, and no snow. That's why we live here, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we only have the white, sandy snow that's on on the beaches in Destin, which there is beautiful. Go. Yeah. For our listening audience today, we are very excited to have Brooke Corson with us. She is the founder of Mutts with a Mission, a service dog organization that's actually located in Portsmouth, Virginia. In addition to Brooke being the founder, she is also an Army veteran. Brooke, welcome to Behind the Warrior podcast. Thank you all very much for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you, and before we get started, just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you where you grew up, and college, and military. Um, so, I grew up down in South Carolina and moved up to Virginia, where my family was from when I was about 10, and have been here and all over the United States since then, and now we're back in Virginia on the other side of the water from where I grew up, where I swore I would never live. Um <laughs> So I went to college at Virginia Tech, um, and I joined the Army in 2003. Actually, it was a year after I got married, I joined joined the Army, um, much to my husband's dismay. Okay. <laughs> what did you do in the Army, Brooke? Um, so I was a supply sergeant. I was a combatives instructor, and later on, I was a drill sergeant. Okay. Awesome. Well, we thank you for your service. Absolutely. Um, well, I know that in our pre call, um, we discussed how you actually got, you know, started with um, your interest in service dogs and service animals and that sort of thing. But I'd like to to go back to um, when you were mobilized at Fort Benning, and you started bringing your dog Angus into the office. You then noticed a shift in the interaction between your soldiers and your dog. Can you tell us about that and what you witnessed? Yes, ma'am. So uh, when I was at Fort Benning, um, I was like you said, I was mobilized down there for two years. Um, I left my husband and, and my other dog stayed at home up in New Jersey. And um, at the time, I decided that I wanted to get a dog to train to, for blood trailing wounded deer. And I got a, a little Cairn Terrier. And um, I brought him to work with me every day. Um, and it's one of those, you know, better to ask for forgiveness than permission things. Um, and he would come sit in the supply room and he was, you know, very cute and just, you know, kind of point of reference, uh, Karen Terrier is like Toto from the Wizard of Oz, it's the Aww. same breed, <laughs> little fuzzy, scruffy thing. Um, and you know, a lot of the, my drill sergeants would come in and they would be like, Hey, where's Angus? And they'd sit down in a chair and they would, you know, um, you could kind of watch him decompress. So, so what was going on? I was down at uh, Fort Benning from 2004 to 2006. And, and what was happening at the time is they were, you know, Fort Benning's home of the infantry. So I was over on uh, Sand Hill where they trained the, the privates. Um, and so they were bringing home infantrymen. So guys that, you know, had been over in Iraq were getting orders to come home, go to drill sergeant school. 
and then, you know, go train the privates so that these privates would have drill sergeants who had you know, real time experience of what was going on over in Iraq uh, during that time. And so, you know, you're coming home from being overseas for however long you've been over there. You go to drill sergeant school, which is eight weeks of basically being treated like a private, but then you also have to learn and retain a, a ton of information that you're going to be teaching the privates. And, and then you're, you go to a unit and you're, then, you know, you get, usually pick up your, each platoon, it's 55 privates on pickup day. So now you're mom, dad, counselor, everything to these, these privates. And it's, it's stressful. Um, and you, know, you don't really realize how stressful it is being a drill sergeant until you are one. It's not always, you know, just yelling at privates to do the right thing and flipping lockers and, you know, beds and stuff like that. Uh, there's a lot more that goes into it. It's a lot of responsibility because you are training the next generation of, of soldiers and in, in other branches, sailors, Marines, airmen, things like that. So it's, it's, there's a lot on you. And a lot of these guys, their units were still overseas. You know, they had, they had been picked um, you know, and, and pulled pulled back to to go to drill sergeant school. So these guys would come in after a long day on the range, dealing with privates, or you know, just depending on you know, where they were out on the ranges and things like that. And and they would come in, sit in the chair, and they'd call Angus over, and and um, he'd come up, and that's actually how he jumped, learned to jump up on a chair. Which they'd sit in a chair and they, you know, pat their laps and get him to come and jump up on them and. And I just watching these guys, um, you know, I kind of, I would watch them, watch them kind of sit there decompressed and just enjoy their time with him. Uh, and then I would start to have drill sergeants from other companies come over and be like, yeah, we want to see the puppy. Uh, so that was kind of where it, where it all started was just watching these guys interact and their, you know, what, what Angus did for them in a very, very, very unofficial capacity. It's like I said, I got into blood trail wounded deer. So. Um, you know, nothing, no therapy dog aspect or anything like that, but just watching him untrained do what he did, you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of, I guess, file that in the back of my mind for later use. You know, Brooke, uh, one of the things that, that I want our listeners to know about you is that uh, you've always been an animal lover from going way back to when you were young, and that uh, even before you were in the military, you had trained dogs. Uh, throughout your life and uh, even in college. Once you were out of the military, um, you found a greater purpose from sharing this story, what you put in the back of your mind and what you thought about. So could you share with the listeners here, how did the Mutts with a Mission come about? How did you how did you think of that, and how did you get it off the ground? Um, so after I got back from Fort Benning in, in 2006, um, Angus, unfortunately, was uh, died in a very tragic accident um and you know i had other dogs at the time but more importantly was i had to go i had to go get a real job um and out in the the world couldn't stay home and i was uh, actually painted our house when i first got back from uh from mobilization and went and got a a job and you know the the phone calls would start coming in of uh, did you hear about so-and-so they committed suicide um, and after getting a couple phone calls like that, I kept saying to my husband, you know, hey, there's got to be something that I can do. There has to be something that, that you know, I can do to, to help these guys and girls. 
Um, and I started, I, like you said, I grew up training dogs. I helped pay my way through college training dogs. Um, and I started looking, uh, you know, at, at service dogs and service dogs for PTSD at the time was fairly new. Um, but I started looking into that and started looking at, you know, assistance dogs international and, and just kind of doing some research and started talking to my husband and said, look, you know, I can train a dog. Um, you know, I can figure out how to task train a dog. So I said, you know, this is, I, I think this is what I want to do. I think I want to start a nonprofit and train service dogs for veterans and wounded warriors and kept talking about, kept talking about it. And he finally one day was like, look, either shut up or do something. And so now so 13 years into it, I think sometimes he will uh, readily admit that he regrets saying that, but I, uh, I coerced him and my brother into being board members so that we could become a 501c and, um, let's, we just move forward from there. Well, congratulations on 13 years of existence Thank providing you. service dogs to our veterans and now our first responders. And, uh, it's just amazing what your organization does. Um, one of the things that, that I wanted to also ask you about is that, um, when you're training service dogs, most organizations, especially good accredited ones such as yourselves, you guys abide by strict guidelines uh, in in regards to placing a service animal with a veteran. What is Assistance Dogs International? Why is that accreditation so important, and uh, why do you guys use that? So Assistance Dogs International, um, they are the, the, the platinum standard of service dog organizations. Um it takes quite a few years to become accredited, and then every five years, um, you have to send in a bunch of information, and then you have an assessor come on site, and they meet with your teams, they meet with your puppy raisers, your volunteers, your staff, um, they meet with just a cross-section of everyone involved with your organization, your graduates, and uh, what they're looking for is to make sure that you're running the program according to their standards. Um, this was something when I first started setting up Bucks for the Mission that I knew that eventually I wanted Bucks for the Mission to be accredited to Assistance Dogs International. Um, not just because of, you know, I can I, I can set up a board and set up a nonprofit board, line it with people who are just going to say, yes, everything you do, everything you say is perfect. You know, Brooke, you're the best person in the world. We'll never disagree with you. But that's not really, you need to have some checks and balances. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, you know, there are people out there that will do that. Um, but what I wanted from up to the mission was I wanted an outside agency to come in and be able to uh, validate that we were doing the right thing. Um, and so, you know, as, as I started forming up to the mission, I started either looking ahead at what ADI is going to require of an organization like ours and started building the program towards that. Um, as an organization that works with veterans, wounded warriors, and first responders, it's even more important for us and for our teams because when our teams graduate from the program, because the program is accredited, because much of the mission is accredited, our teams are able to get dog of record status through the VA for their dog, which means the working life of their dog, the VA will pay the medical treatment. Uh, they will also give them money to come do their yearly recertifications that we require. Um, if they need a specialized harness other than what we provide, 
or maybe they need another harness. Um, maybe the one that we provided them with is, is broken and they need a new one. Um, mobility harnesses can cost upwards of six to $800. The VA will pay for that as long as the dog is their dog of record. Uh, so it also enables our teams to travel internationally as well with their dog as their service dog. Well, I appreciate you uh, explaining that about why ADI is so important for the accreditation and certification of your dogs, and uh, especially with the VA, because I, I think the VA is very narrow in who they do recognize. So the fact that they do recognize ADI and they will help many of our veterans who are, many of them are on a pension, this is very important to get that service uh, post once they get mated with their animal. Uh, so that's very good. Yes, sir. Yeah. And uh, the other, you know, they'll recognize ADI and the International Guide Dog Federation, the IGDF. Those are the two organizations that they will recognize dogs from. Okay. Thank you for that, Brooke. That's mm-hmm. great information. Um, can you tell us who qualifies for a service animal through your organization? Um, for example, pre and post 9 11 and um, in 2020, you added first responders. I'll let you elaborate on those. But um, And also, what breed of dogs do you choose as service animals and why? Yes, absolutely. So for our program, it's anyone who has a service-connected uh, disability or a line of duty. So we are not, um, I think some organizations are post-9-11. We are pre- and post-9-11 as long as you're disability is service connected um we do not train hearing or guide dogs there are organizations that specialize in that um and so we leave especially guide dogs and that is extremely specialized training um and we leave that to the guide dog organizations that that's all they do um but so any any service connected or line of duty connected disability we will work with the veterans or um first responder to to uh, go through our application process and then hopefully match them up with the correct dog. You asked about breeds. This is huge. Um, we get a lot of requests because we work with veterans and law enforcement. Um, not everyone wants a lab or a golden retriever, you know, which are usually the standard service dog candidates that programs use. Um, but there's a reason why so many service dog programs use them. This is, that's because labs and goldens, you know, the retriever breeds have been bred for centuries to work for people. Um, you know, that's, and they retrieve things naturally. So it is very, very important to not only the team, but I feel a personal, um, I, I don't want to say I owe it to the dogs, but I do. Um, you know, we, mm-hmm. we get these puppies that, eight weeks old, you know, their breeding, their breedings are planned before we even get them. Um, and we, we owe it to these dogs to make sure that they are in a job that they like. You know, it's not like a person where we can change their job if we don't like it. You know, we go find another job. We bring these dogs up into these jobs and we want them to be happy, willing workers. So we, it is imperative that we have the right dog for the right job. Um, we really focus on our, on our Labradors, um, you know, some programs use Goldens, which we're starting to get into the Golden breed as well. Um, you know, dogs that dogs that don't make good working dogs uh, or, you know, service dogs are your higher energy dogs, like your, I'm going to say it, your Belgian Malinois. 
um, we get, you know, we're, we're down here in, in Portsmouth. So we get, you know, the, we have army, Navy and Marines in air force. And cause we, we, we pretty much have all the branches around us. And some of these people have, when they've been overseas, you know, they've had interactions with Malinois or shepherds or things like that, you know, as, as military working dogs. And those dogs make phenomenal military working dogs because they're active all day and they're working and they have a job. But they don't necessarily make a good service dog. A service dog needs to be attentive to their person. They don't need to be guardy, um, which means, you know, they keep people away. Part of the service dog's job, especially if it's for PTSD, is to invite the public to make to have interaction with the person that they may not have had previously. Um, and in all fairness, Malinois don't want to go lay on the floor at the VA for four to six hours while you're waiting for your appointment. Um, so I, I have my I have personal dogs. I, I do not have a service dog myself, um, but I do a lot of dog sports with my dogs. I do some rehabbing um, for dogs and um, a dog that's given the wrong job and how unhappy they are. So mm-hmm. it's, it's very, very important to us that, that we have the right dog for the right job. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of guardian breeds don't make good service dogs because in the end, you know, you're fighting against genetics. You're fighting against what has that dog been bred to do for, for hundreds of years. Right. Um, so. Well, it makes a lot of sense, Brooke. And I think, you know, I, I really appreciate the fact that you have sort of this shared responsibility or shared, um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it is responsibility that you feel not only to the person who's actually going to receive the dog and train with the dog, but you have a personal responsibility to the animal. And I think that I think that's huge. And um, thank you for that. I, I, it's very, very cool. Um I did want to ask how what what does training look like? What type of training do you guys actually do at Mutts with a Mission and how long does it take and kind of maybe walk us through briefly about that. Okay, yes ma'am. Um so we we kind of run the gamut. We get the puppies when they're 8 weeks old, no less than 8 weeks old. Um between 8 to 12 weeks, we get these puppies in. And the first thing we do is we want to teach them to love learning. Um, you know, they're going to be, they're, they're going to have a lot of information thrown at them over the next two years. Um, and, you know, a lot of stuff's going to go on with them. And we need to make sure that these puppies want to learn, that they're active training partners, and that they, you know, they don't come into work every day or, you know, every week just like, oh, man, we're here. This is the worst thing in in the world, we want them. We want them bouncing up the stairs to the training facility. Um, you know, we want happy working dogs. Um, you know, we want them engaged. So, the, really, the first couple of weeks, we we teach them. You know, their name, their basic routines, and and that training is fun. Uh, and we really focus on you know trying to keep it fun. We use what we call balanced techniques. Um, we're not all positive. We're not you know negative. Um, we do use, I mean, there's, there's always a negative, right? You have to use, we have to balance between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we do, you know, we use a lot of food, especially since we work with retrievers. They love to eat, especially labs. They love to eat. <laughs> yes, I love, I, I love a food motivated dog. <laughs> um, and then, you know, we do, 
a lot. We do a lot of outings with these puppies. We do basic obedience, rock solid obedience. I have, you know, a five month old puppy right now, um, who we had an event in our training facility. Um, and the puppy, it was that they were having dinner. People were having dinner. This puppy laid on his mat the entire dinner. And people were walking by, you know, getting food, throwing the trash away and things like that. And he never got up. Um, so consistency is a big thing that we teach our puppy raisers. We rely on puppy raisers out in the community to take the puppies home with them and, and continue the training. Every week they'll come in, they'll learn, they take it home and they go out and work on it. We do a lot of outings. We're constantly evaluating the puppies to make sure that this is the right job for them, that they can handle the stress of being in public and things like that. Um, you know, as, as these dogs are growing up, we want to make sure that they're sound working dogs that, you know, is able to focus on their handler. We don't want the, we don't want their recipients to call us back in six months and go, you know what, this dog makes my life harder than it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, I'm having to go around the corner and make sure a dog's not coming so that my dog doesn't react to it. And these dogs should just be helpmates. So, Things that we, we're blessed down here because we're in the Tidewater area. We have a ferry that we take the dogs on. We take them uh, to the airport. We have a contact with the TSA at the, at the local airport. So we're able to get them through the, the TSA checkpoint several times. Our puppy raisers, if they fly somewhere, they'll fly with them when they're a little older. Constantly going out to restaurants. Uh, you know, Pre-COVID, they were going to movies. Um, we have Bush Gardens, they'll go to Bush Gardens, they ride the Tide, which is kind of like a scaled down metro, it's like a train, um, so anything that we, we go to the zoo, so really anything that we can think of, um, we have our, our puppies do, and I, I say puppies, that's up till they're two, till they're two years old, um, and, you know, like I said, then we start task training them, make sure, you know, that they they are they're really spot on that when when we place them that that they know the tasks that that they have to do that make them a service dog. So Brooke, uh, it, it sounds like there is a lot a lot of moving parts just to get a service dog ready to be mated with their owner um, from the time from the time that they're pups. Uh, you have an evaluation process to make sure that they're good candidates to be service dogs, but they're also they're in constant evaluation, aren't they? Through through this almost two year period, uh, they absolutely are. Yes, sir. I mean, we had a dog. Uh, we one year, unfortunately, he'd gone through the whole process, and we were three weeks out from transition camp, which is where we bring the recipient um, to our facility and they're here for two weeks to train with the dog and go on outings and things like that. Three weeks before transition camp, we had to drop the dog from the program. Um, it was an isolated incident. He growled at someone inappropriately, something he had never, ever, ever done mm-hmm. in the two years that we had, you know, that we were training him. Um, and we dropped him from the program. So we called them career change dogs, which is a nice way of saying that this is not the job for you. Um, and we found him a, a very, very, very nice pet home. So, right. Um, and that, that's heartbreaking, but it, it is, I, I mean, as the founder of Mutt the Mission, my name goes on every single dog mm-hmm. that goes out of this program. And I want to make sure that, you know, when I look at these dogs and see them and as I'm pairing them with these individuals, 
that they're getting the best dog that they can, they, they, that we can produce. And I tell people that if I lose sleep about a dog, it's probably going to get washed out from the program. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I absolutely understand that and, and know that uh, your organization does have tremendous success because your team, you and your team, do such a great job of evaluating the dogs and making sure that they're ready uh, when the time comes to be made uh, paired with with their owner. So, speaking of their owners, um, there's uh, we'll just say for an example, a wounded warrior applies to your organization. He gets vetted. Uh, you decide that it is a good fit. He he meets the standards required, and now you're going to make that pairing process. Could you talk a little bit about how do you pair an applicant with a service dog? Do you do you decide that beforehand? Do you decide that when you meet them? How long does that process take to uh, join a service dog to its owner? And then what's the responsibility of the owner? I mean, it doesn't end once they get the dog. Could you talk about what their responsibility is to to care for and work with their service dog? Yes, sir. So the, the process is, is, you know, the first first step, of course, is they have to fill out an application. Um, once they fill out that application, then um, it, goes over, it goes to our selection committee. And we'll call the people for an interview right now, of course, with, you know, all the restrictions and everything we're doing, um, Zoom interviews, and we'll meet with the person, you know, talk to them, get a little more information about them. You know, there's a lot, to, oh, a lot to be said about face-to-face or even, you know, Zoom meetings that you, you don't get just someone writing stuff on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we will we put them on our waiting list. Right now we have a two-year waiting list. Um, we're actually fortunate when uh, COVID hit, I know a lot of programs really took a hit as far as puppy raisers and staff and things like that. Um, we were fortunate and we were able to pretty much continue to operate as normal. Um, so our, our waiting list hasn't backed up too, too much and we didn't lose any dogs in the process. Um, there are, I know there's some programs that have had to just release entire classes of dogs as pets because of, um, COVID and not being able to pair their dogs with people. So um, once the applications, you know, once the applicants selected, they go on our waiting list, we ask that they you know, contact us every couple months just to let us know how they're doing, if anything has changed. Uh, you know, we give an update on where we are in the process and you know, we keep training dogs. So uh, then as we get closer to the dogs being ready, you know, we look back on our list and say, okay, we we think X dog would be appropriate for X person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we start task training that do- dog towards that person, um, their, their specific needs. And um, once the, the dog is at least two or, uh, I mean, I think we'll go to as close as 23 months, um, but they're, they're pretty close to two when we, when we bring the people in for transition camp, uh, we'll a couple months ahead. We'll call the people. We'll say, "Hey, listen, uh, we, you know, we think we have a match for you. We need you to come to Portsmouth, Virginia, for um, you know two weeks." Um, we are blessed. We have people who sponsor our teams, so they are not responsible for any of the costs except for they buy their own dinners in the evenings if we're not going out. Otherwise. Muscle the mission pays for the hotel rooms, 
um, their travel and things like that to, to get them up here so that they can um, get paired up with their dog. Once they're here, they are here for two weeks, and it's very, very, very intensive training. Um, they are with us from basically 8 o'clock till 5 o'clock every afternoon, and they are training first couple you know the first couple of days are getting used to dogs and how to work with dogs and things like that um learning the commands it's just very 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 intensive um we take them once we're comfortable with them working with the dogs and knowing the commands and things like that um we then start our outings and you know, we start out with something like a lunch and then we take them everywhere the dogs have been. We take them down to the ocean front. We take them down, you know, where there's horses and lots of people and what we call rude dogs um, and, and things like that. So we expose them to everything that these dogs have been exposed to in the past two years so that they get the understanding that, yes, my dog, under, you know, my dog will behave in these situations. Fortunately, a couple of years ago, I mentioned earlier, you know, we have a, um, contact with the TSA, we're able to get these teams to be able to um, not actually fly, but to be able to go through the checkpoint so that they know, okay, when I fly with my dog, this is the procedure that I'm going to go through as I'm going through the security checkpoint. This is what I need to do. This is, you know, this is a good idea. So the first time they fly, I mean, it's, it's stressful enough to fly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's even more stressful when you have to fly with a service dog. Mm-hmm. And But knowing, already knowing the procedures of going through security makes life so much easier, we've been told. Um, and, and so they get to kind of do a, a mock walkthrough with that. Again, we take them on the ferry. We take them on the tide. Uh, we just get them out anywhere and everywhere. We set up access challenges for them because really it's really the first time these people... If you have a service dog, eventually you're going to be challenged by someone, mm-hmm. um, someplace. And and so we, we set that up for these guys. So the first time it happens, it's not while they're by themselves. And I say guys, I mean guys and girls. Um, that it's not, you know, a shocker where it's like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to react. We're kind of there hanging out in the background. You know, we talk them through it if needs be. Um and then we come back as a group and discuss it and say, okay, this is how, how did everyone feel about their access challenge? Um, you know, how could we have handled it differently? So we want to make sure we talk about laws, their responsibilities as a service dog handler. Um, what are their, you know, they have rights and responsibilities because really and truly a service dog in the eyes of the federal government in the eyes of the law is a wheelchair. So, you know, um, I think a lot of times you hear, oh, you know, this, they wouldn't allow my service dog in because of one reason or another. Well, technically, it, they can excuse the person. You know, they can excuse the dog, not the person. So, so, yes, if your service dog is not acting appropriately, if it's, you know, soliciting attention, if it's trying to get, um, you know, take people's food off tables, growling at people, barking at people, um, you know, just in general acting a fool, then the business has every right to excuse the dog. They can say, hey, you know what? You're allowed to come back and, and eat your dinner. You're allowed to come back and shop, but you can't bring your dog in with you. Um, and and that's, 
it was in the eyes of the law. That's appropriate. If your dog's not behaving appropriately or is, you know, a menace, then yes, the dog, the service dog can be excused from the premises. So they learn, you know, what are their responsibilities? You have to keep up with the training. Um, you know, it's training's a tangible skill just like everything else. So you have to make sure that you know, you're you're keeping up with the dog's training. You have to make sure they're healthy, clean, um, things like that. So there, you know, we go over all of that with them. Right. Uh, they have to re- mm-hmm. come back and recertify every year. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a requirement that every single year they come back, they recertify. Um, you know, we make sure that the dog is healthy, that it's appropriately working, still able to do its tasks for people, and and uh, that you know it's it's an appropriate working team. So you're you're working with the owner and the service dog, the team as you call them. You're working with them all the time. Like you'll be in contact with them throughout the working service of the dog's life. Absolutely, yes, sir. And we see them, like I said, at least once a year. Um, yeah, you know, and they know that if they have issues or if they have challenges or things like that, it, it's a simple matter. Of just picking up the phone and giving us a call, and we will. Uh, I've handled access challenges out in Las Vegas before had a team call me and say, Hey, you know, I was trying to do X and they won't let me in. Okay. Too easy. Um, let me, let me have the name of the, the business that's giving you a hard time. And they, they gave me the name. I called, they were still there. They said, Oh, I said, may I please speak to your manager? They were like, Oh, well they, they're, uh, they're in the middle of a situation. I said, I'm part of that situation. Your manager needs to speak to me before, you know, a Department of Justice complaint is filed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we're there for our teams twenty four seven. It's not we don't just give them a dog and, and, and push them out the door and say have a nice life. Um, they're, they're they're part of the family. Mm-hmm. Returning independence to men and women who sacrificed for the nation. What did, what does that statement mean to you, Brooke? Um. That's a that's a hard one to put into words. Um, it's you know these these men and women they they sacrifice so much for us. Whether they're a first responder, whether they're a you know a, a soldier, a sailor, a marine, an airman, even in a, a coast guardsman. Um, you, you know that you go in, you don't know. You you sign your name on the on the line. Um, and you don't know you don't know where your journey is going to lead you, mm-hmm. um, but all, all you're doing is you're stepping up from your for your country, whether you're deployed, mobilized, whether you're home, you know, hitting the streets every day. I, I, I mean, they 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 give up so much. You're giving up time with your family. You're giving up time, um, you know, from from the things that you enjoy, and 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 ultimately, so some of these men and women give up their their physical well-being, they give up their mental well-being, and, and even their lives. Mm-hmm. So if I can restore someone's independence, even just a little bit, so if I have someone who, um, say they suffer from PTSD, and you know, now they can't go out, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're basically a shut-in for all intents and purposes, except for some very, very specific activities. If I can make it so that they're able to go out, Maybe maybe go to a function with their children. Maybe go out to dinner with their husband or wife. Things that they weren't able to do anymore or have not been able to do. If I can return that independence to be able to do some of these things that, that were sacrificed 
this was their service, then um, that that's that's my goal. Ultimately, um, I, I tell I I say to people, you know, I if I can keep one person off the twenty two a day list, then I've done my job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the twenty two a day is is the number that everyone knows about. You know, veterans with the, with the suicide rate from PTSD. Um, but last, like you mentioned in 20, uh, in the 20, in the 2019, early 2020, 2020, just kind of is just this ambiguous year. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so yeah. you try to try to give a point of reference during 2020 and it's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, when we started accepting first responders, it's because it was pointed out to us that, if we were to break this, so we know 22 a day, we know 22 veterans when you average it out a day commit suicide. In the past five years within the law enforcement community, their suicide rate has risen every single year. Mm. 27 to 29% of law enforcement officers and first responders are either veterans, they serve in the National Guard, or they're reservists. So, um, you know, it, if you were to break it down, their suicide rate is higher than that of veterans. Um, and, and so when this is brought to us through, by another organization, um, you know, we, we kind of, it, it, it was staggering. Um, you know, we, I guess we really hadn't thought about, you know, these men and women who were serving us on the home front about their suicide rate being um, you know, as, as bad or worse than, than those of our, uh, of our veterans. Mm-hmm. And we, we made the decision that, you know what, this is a, this is a community that they're, they're keeping us free, just like our, our veterans, our, our soldiers and, and all them that, that we need, they need to be included too, uh, especially where a lot of them are reservists and national guards and, and veterans themselves. Brooke, thanks for sharing that. Um, You're spot on that many of our veteran military men and women who have served also serve as law enforcement, many of our National Guard um, also as well. So I appreciate you pointing that out. And I'm very um, encouraged to see that organizations such as yours are either taking care of veterans alongside our first responders and our police. and it's kind of growing, so uh, there's there's a lot of good stuff going on there, and and I hope that that uh, very disturbing trend will start going down quickly. Uh, one of the things that I you wanted and me to, both, that's for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. One of the things that I wanted to also <laughs> talk to you about, and uh, we talked about this on the pre-call. Um, you've been working with veterans and and providing service dogs for many many years. Um, I have been working with wounded, ill, and injured for about a dozen years, and from the very beginning was introduced to the concept of a service dog um, and individuals wanting one and the reasons why that they wanted one. And so I'm not an expert by any means, but uh, I sort of was uh, working with a lot of them and with different organizations to help them acquire a service dog. And over time, um, it sometimes becomes a little bit confusing as to do you really need a service dog would you be better served with a um, say a therapy dog or emotional support 
dog or animal. Could you talk about the differences between a service dog, a therapy dog, an emotional support animal? And in your opinion, does everybody who want who wants a service dog necessarily need one? Um, those are those are very good questions. So, with I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the last one first. Um, as far as service dogs, service dogs are a modality of treatment. Um, we all wish it were the panacea of, hey, yeah, you get a service dog and your life immediately changes for the better, and you know, where you couldn't go out before, now you're out every single day, and you know, everything just melts away when you're handed that leash. Um, that's not that's not the case. Um, it's the, as I said, it's, it's, it's another modality of treatment. So it's, it's in addition to, um, it's not instead of, so, um, kind of like if I'm in a wheelchair, but I can walk a little, sometimes I might use a cane. Um, it doesn't mean that I never use my, my wheelchair or, or another method to help get me around, but it's just another, another way to help me. Um, so we we have found over the years that that not everybody um, it, it's not, it's not the right modality of treatment for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a lot. It's like having like let's say flying with a, a service dog. There's a lot of prep work that has to go into it. Um, you know, you have to make sure that your dog has gone to the bathroom. You know, before you don't feed them right before you fly. I mean, there's a lot you've got to know where your service dog rest areas are. So there's a lot that goes into it as far as planning and prep work. You have to have their bag. You have to have their food. So there's, um, you know, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, service dogs are not meant to keep people away. In, in fact, if, if they do anything, they draw more attention to you. Right. Uh, everybody, you know, loves to see a well-trained dog. Um, everybody and their mother at some point in their life has had a lab. And if you have a lab for a service dog, then, you know, they're going to want to tell you about the lab that they had, you know, 45 years ago. Um, you know, so it, it increases your public interaction. Um, they, they, they absolutely do force you to go out, um, because you have to go by dog food, you have to exercise and things like that. Um, so if people aren't wanting that or if they're not, um, in a position where they can deal with that yet, if they're you know if they're not there in their treatment yet, where they can you know, interact with people and things like that, then it's not it's not right for them. Mm-hmm. Maybe they can't. Maybe they have a hard enough time remembering everything that they need to take with them for the day to go out and run errands. Having to remember everything with your service dog that just adds to it. So that mm-hmm. might not be the right you know treatment for them. There's several. Um, uh, bloggers that have written about how there's a, a story of a lady who was training one of her dogs to be a service dog for herself and right before it was time for the dog to she was going to get it certified to an outside trainer um, right before it was time she kind of took she got injured and so she wasn't able to take the dog out with her every single time and she realized that she was going out without this dog that she was able to function without the dog and it actually um, was easier for her to get out and about without that dog. So that, that's a case of, you know, and, and ultimately what she, her decision was, was that she, she kept the dog because it was her dog, but she turned him just into a, a very well-trained family pet. Um, so 
you have to look at the big picture, um, you know, of is this going to be, is this truly going to help me or is it, you know, going to be something that's going to cause me more stress and anxiety? Is taking care of another being going to cause me stress and anxiety or is it going to be, you know, something that I can, I can fit into my normal routine seamlessly? I mean, there's always going to be hiccups. There's always going to be concerns. Um, but you have to, I think you just, you really have to sit back and, and, and look at all the pros and cons of having a sort of stuff. You have to change your routine. You have to, you know, whether it's your work routine, whether it's your daily routine, you know, things have to change because now you have to take care of this animal as well. Um, you know, you're constantly looking out for other dogs. You're not, you're looking out for, you know, you may have to tell someone in public, I'm sorry, no, you can't pet my dog. Um, you know, can you deal with the, you know, what if they get upset with you? you know, we all see the YouTube videos and things like that of people getting upset, you know, because they're not allowed to pet your service dog. You know, can you, can you handle that? That's not an everyday thing. Um, but, you know, and you have to think, can I handle that? So service dogs are trained. They're very, 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 very highly trained. Um, like I said, it takes, takes a program about two years to train a service dog for someone. Um, and these dogs are trained. They're highly skilled in obedience. They've been extensively socialized and exposed to, you know, a bunch of different situations and people and sights and sounds and cells. Um, but most importantly, what makes a dog a service dog is that it's task trained. And what a task is, is it's a repeatable behavior that this dog has been trained to do that mitigate the individual's disability. So a task could be waking up a person from a nightmare, um, medication reminders, reminding the person at the same time every day that they need to, to take medication. Um, another task could be uh, mobility, picking up dropped items, you know, helping them uh, if they normally have balance problems, helping them up and down stairs. Uh, so there's, these are reproducible tasks. These mm -hmm. are tasks that, God forbid, you ever wound up in court, and the judge said, okay, um, you know, you say that this, this dog is your service dog, and it's been trained to uh, help you up if you fall or to go get help or something like that. Let's, let's see it. Um, so, you know, these are things that it's, a lot of people like to say, well, my my, this is my service dog. Okay, well, what tasks does your dog do? Makes me feel better. It's not a service animal. It's not a service dog. Um, that's a benefit to having a, a service dog. So it's a benefit to having a dog, period. I mean, I have quite a few dogs of my own who um, they're not service dogs. I have, in my household, I have the, the anti-service dogs. I have dogs that could never be service dogs because of breed characteristics. Um, mm -hmm. I have terriers. Terrible, terrible service dogs. <laughs> um, so, you know, these dogs are, um, these dogs are trained. So if I say, you know, hey, Yahtzee, go get help. Yahtzee's going to go get help. Um, and, and that could be, a, you know, part of my disability is I may fall. So maybe I'm a fall risk and I need to, you know, I need my dog to go get help. These are, are, are tasks. Not that they make me feel better. That's not, that's not a service dog task at all. Um, that's more of a task of what you would call an emotional support animal. And emotional support animals have no access rights. 
so where service dogs are allowed out in public and places where dogs are not allowed, like restaurants and um, airplanes and, uh, you know, they can go to the hospital with you as long as you're not in the surgical room. Um, those are places that service dog animals are allowed, service dogs. And emotional support animals are not. Emotional support animals have no specialized training. They have no, they don't even have to have basic obedience. Where emotional support animals fall into the spectrum is, is under the Fair Housing Act. So this is how, if you, uh, if, you know, if your landlord falls under the Fair Housing Act, which are very specific requirements, then you, you can have your doctor write a note and say, hey, you know what? This person would be serviced. Their mental health would be better if they have an emotional support animal just to keep them company. And that's where you get your cats and your hamsters, your raccoons, your peacocks, whatever. You know, that there's no there's no set animal that can be an emotional support animal. Right. I mean, these are dogs that, they're the dogs that make you feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, my, my youngest son always says, you know, if you like spiders, a spider could be. You could have an emotional support spider. Um, but they're not allowed on planes anymore. They're not allowed in restaurants or, you know, say this or mall. They're not, they're not allowed where pets are not allowed. Uh, so you can take them to Lowe's and Home Depot and PetSmart, but you can't take them into Kroger and Walmart and places like that. Again, these dogs have had no specific training. And in all honesty, they are the biggest threat to our trained service dogs, those and fake service dogs, people that go online and buy the vests and slap on their dog. Right. Um, because these dogs have not been trained to handle the stress of being out in public and being around other people and learning how to ignore food on the floor, dogs, or, you know, they're acting aggressively towards them and things like that. Um, these, these dogs haven't been taught that. So, or how to fly on a plane or anything like that. So, um, that's an emotional support animal. No access rights out in public um, other than where pets are allowed. Service dogs have access to, to, to places in public where pets are not allowed. And then you have your therapy dogs. The therapy dogs are kind of middle of the road. These are dogs that have gone through a therapy dog program, so they have to have good obedience. Um, you know, they've been tested and retested and have to meet certain criteria. But what the purpose of a, um, a therapy dog is, is they bring comfort to a group of people. These are the dogs that you see that go to hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they go to nursing homes. Their purpose in life, they're not, they're not task trained, but their purpose in life is to be a solid, steady dog that can go meet and be pet by groups of people. Um, you, I think there's some, there's a crisis intervention dogs that they're therapy dogs who've been trained to go you know, in a crisis to go respond and just let people love on them, spend time with them. Um, you know, and, and that's what these dogs do, but they have, they have more training and they're certified through therapy dog organizations. Well, I appreciate uh, so that. Yeah. Those are therapy dogs. I appreciate you uh, pointing out the differences in the dogs and because sometimes it is confusing to those who don't know, they'll see a vest on a dog and they automatically think it's a service dog and that's not the case. Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. Now, 
Um, and, and you know, to, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, and to reach back out, you know, um, earlier you had mentioned about um, you know, a book. You and I had talk, kind of talked beforehand yeah. um, about a book that you had recommended, mm-hmm. uh, that you would recommend your people read before they got a service dog. Right. Um, and we've actually imp- implemented that into our program um, that until Tuesday because um, I think it gives people a very realistic idea of what it is to be paired with a service dog. Yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate you bringing that up. And uh, yeah, I read that book a long time ago, Until Tuesday, uh, Tuesday being the name of the service dog, which was a golden retriever. And uh, the gentleman who wrote the book was a captain. I think he was in Iraq and uh, suffered from severe PTSD. And so he wrote this book about his his dog and how this dog changed his life. But uh, what also stood out to me was just the bond they had and the the really amazing care that he put into his service dog as far as making sure the the service dog was cared for and taken care of the right way. And so when I had folks come to me saying, you know, well, I'm thinking about getting a service dog, I, I just look at them. I say, have you ever read Until Tuesday? And they, they would say, no, I haven't heard of it. And I said, well, I tell you what, if you read that book and you're still very interested, I go, and it's it's probably you're probably ready for one because it is such a responsibility and and uh, you have talked a lot about how much training goes into a service dog. Well, equally, uh, the responsibility for the owner to the service dog is 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 required as well. Yes, sir. No, you're right. There's a lot of responsibility in, in having even a dog as a pet, but to have a service dog that's even more so. Um, yeah. and you are. You know, you're responsible for that dog, and you know that dog gets you 110. percent Sure. You need to make sure that they're they're cared for, um, and that you provide for their safety, so that um, you know that that's the least we can do for them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Brooke, there are uh, there's a lot of. Uh, service dog organizations that are out there. You, you go online, you Google, you can find them everywhere. They're in all 50 states. Um, you have a two-year waiting list, which um, speaks to the fact that uh, you have a wonderful organization and people want to get your dogs the way they're the way they're trained, the way they're brought up, the way they're selected. So, if someone is out there and they're looking for a service dog organization, what would you recommend they look for if they're if they're if they're seriously looking? Um, so I always, always recommend that they go to the Assistance Dogs International website and look for programs there, especially um, anybody really, but especially veterans because they qualify for dog of record benefits. Um, I also tell them to apply to as many programs through ADI that will take your application. Um, I, I, you know, I was trying to take the shotgun approach because whereas – Maybe we have a two-year waiting list. Well, maybe Canines for Warriors has a three-year waiting list, but somebody gets maybe maybe get bumped up on the list, mm-hmm. um, you know. And then I, and then people say, "Oh, well, I don't want to take somebody off the spot." Well, that's too easy. If you wind up getting a dog from, say, you apply to five organizations, you get a dog from one organization, then you call the other four organizations and say, "Hey, you can take me off the list. I've gotten a dog." Mm-hmm. And in all honesty, if I had someone call me. If I had one of my waitlist people call me and say, hey, look, I got a dog from Service Dogs of Virginia. They're a fellow um, ABI accredited program. I'm going to say, hey, awesome. I know that it, you've gotten a great dog from a great organization. 
there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, you've, you've received a quality dog. Okay, we'll wipe you off our list and we'll move you, uh, you know, we'll move somebody else up, up into your spot. Uh, you know, and it, it's very, very, very crucial that people are, that they do their research on the organizations because I get a lot of phone calls of people, hey, you know what, I just got this puppy from this organization They charged me $30,000, I got a six-month-old puppy, um, uh, okay, like, and they're always not doing anything for me, right, because he's six months old and he's not physically or mentally mature, you know, and unfortunately, um, there are a lot of organizations out there that are in it for the money. I think some of them are trying to do the right thing, but they get a little sideways sometimes. Um, and, and with ADI, you have that third party that's looking over your shoulder and they, they come to you every five years and say, all right, let's see it. What, yeah, I want to see it. What have you been doing? Have you done exactly what we've told you to? I mean, they're, they're very clear. They're very black and white about what they expect of us. Um, you know, we, we try to exceed their standards in every way. Um, but you have that, you have that outside organization coming in and saying, yes, you're doing the right thing or no, you're not doing the right thing. Um, you know, there, so, you know, some people say, well, I want to, I want to pick a dog and, and use it myself. And while we do have an owner trained option in our program, we're one of the few that do. I tell people, please don't go out and buy a dog. Um, because you don't know what you're looking for, mm-hmm. you know, and, and some breeders will say, oh yeah, well, I've, I've, I've placed a service dog before. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we, we, I've been, I've been pulling dogs for 13 years now. Um, and I, sometimes I still get it wrong. You know, I, I look at dogs, I look at, you know, the, they've been bred generations for good hips, good elbows, good eyes, good temperaments, good hearts. So there's a lot more into it than just going into a shelter. I'm, and I'm not disparaging shelter dogs at all. We used to use them. Um, but when you're selecting a service dog candidate, you have to use your head and not your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be that can be difficult, especially if you're in a shelter and you say, hey, well, I want this. But then down the road, you know, we, we stopped using shelter and rescue dogs because we ran into where issues would pop up that when we tested them initially weren't there because of things that had happened to them as, as younger puppies. Um, or we would go to do their health clearances. We have to have um, hip and elbow x-rays because, you know, these dogs are going to be doing a lot of walking and things like that. And it's, it's again, it's, it's part of our... I think to me, it's, it's the ethical thing to do to make sure that these dogs, you know, are structurally sound. And we were having dogs that after a year uh, were, were failing their x-rays. And, mm-hmm. and so we were having to place them in, in pet homes. It's not that they weren't nice dogs. It's just they weren't the right dog for the job. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I really say to people, check out the organization. If, if you're going, if you're a veteran, if you're going to be flying internationally, um, Definitely you have to go to an, an ADI accredited organization. Um, if you if you choose to go with one for with a shorter waiting list, check into why, why do you have a shorter waiting list? How long is your training up process for your dogs? Um, what kind of support do you get after? Like do they hand you the dog and say, Bye, see you later, it was nice knowing you? Or do they hand you the dog and say, Okay, 
Uh, see you in a year for recertification. If you have any issues, give us a call. What's their successor dog process like? So a successor dog is a dog that um, we retire our dogs from their 10. Um, you know, God forbid nothing happens to them sooner. Um, but it, it's, we started, you know, talking to our handlers. We need you, you know, you, you got to reapply for another dog. And the reason that we had people reapply is because their, their needs change. An example of this is years ago, we placed a dog mainly, um, trained with tasks for PTSD. Um, in the eight years that this, that this lady has had this dog, um, her mobility issues have gotten worse. So when we placed the successor dog with her last year, uh, she needed more mobility tasks out of her second dog than she did her first dog. Uh, so, so we have them reapply. But the thing about our successor policy is, is if, if you're a successor, if you're receiving a successor dog, you're applying for a successor dog, then you go to the top of the list. So if I have 20 new incoming applicants and, um, God forbid, we'll say we haven't had it happen yet. And I, I hope it never does, but you know, eventually it will, um, just because the nature of our business. But um, say I have a dog get cancer and has to be taken out of service, or a dog gets attacked, um, you know, and, and has to be pulled out of service. It only takes one attack for some dogs to to not be able to work as a service dog anymore. Um, and so, so then that person immediately goes to the top of my list. You know, they get the next available, appropriately trained dogs for them. Um, so, you know, do, what is their successor dog process like? Do, are you are you on the list? Do you have to, you know, reading reapplying for a successor dog isn't unrealistic, um, but not having a successor dog program is unrealistic. And I know that um, ADI programs. We are required, and it's the, it's, it's the ethically right thing to do anyway. It's the morally right thing to do anyway. We're required to have a successor dog program, um, where you know, for for our for our teams. Um, you know, what kind of are, are they going to go to bat for you? Can you call them up and say, "Hey, I'm having this issue," and are they going to give you the support, or do they just kind of wash your hands, wash their hands when you're done? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are just things. Um, you know, are they are they requiring hip and elbow clearances from the parents and the dogs are getting from uh, puppies from, or you know, when they when they're a certain age, do they do these clearances? Are, you know, are they making sure you're getting the healthiest dogs possible? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and because unfortunately, I see it. Um, you know, I've been doing this for 13 years, and and I, I see it all the time. Um, you know, dogs that, that never get taken out of service because there is no follow-up program. And you see them. I saw one last time I flew somewhere. Dog was about 15 years old being drugged around the airport. Dog could oh. hardly walk. Yeah. And, mm. you know, so it's, it's hard. And then, you know, what, what is their, their support program like? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for the, for the team. So they, are they there for you? Can you call them and, and get support? Right. Well, you shared a, a, a wealth of information there, Brooke, and I think um, for our folks out there listening that may be interested in, in obtaining a service dog, I think doing a really thorough, thorough search on the organization and understanding all of the steps 
and really listening to this podcast with all of the information that you provided can be very crucial in, in them choosing an organization. So thank you for that. Um, yes, ma'am. My next question for you is, do you, do you work with the VA and how, how much on average does it cost to train a service animal? We do work with the VA. Um, we, so the VA has a grant that they will give to programs, the $10,000 grant that programs can apply for, for this is what programs do, not the individuals, mm-hmm. um, that they will give to a program that trains a dog, that accepts a person and trains a dog for them. Um, we do not accept that grant. We don't, we don't apply for that grant. We don't take the grant. And the reason for that is it's a one time, $10,000 grants. So if I have a person who goes through six service dogs during their career of having service dogs, um, we only get that grant once. And so, um, and then, and then what comes along with that is that the VA then gets to tell you, um, it helps to just to kind of get their, their hand into to your service dog program and tell you what you can and can't do. Um, I feel that because we're accredited to ADI that we do have enough oversight. And, you know, ADI is what's recognized um, through the VA. So I don't, I don't feel like, I don't feel like that our standards are any less. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel like I need that oversight from the VA. In all honesty, I don't roll up in the VA and tell them how to run their stuff even though I'd like to sometimes. Um, <laughs> and, yes, you know, so I don't really want them in my... Like I, I'm, I'm kind of with the mindset of like let the let the subject matter experts do what they need to do. Sure. Um, yeah. I'm not going to roll up into a guide dog organization and tell them how they should train their dogs. Right. Because I'm not a guide dog person. That's that's way beyond my my scope of expertise. Right. Um, and so so we do work with the VA in the respect of you know we have contact with them about obtaining dog of record. Um, if we need to contact someone's provider because maybe they don't understand exactly, you know, what a service dog does and why we need our forms filled out. Um, or, you know, we've had conversations with providers that didn't, they're like, yeah, this person wanted me to fill this out for a service dog. And then when we spoke to them, they're like, oh no, this person is not going to be able to go out in public for, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it, this is not a situation they're going to be able to handle for a very long time. You know, so we, we try to help educate, try to help steer them, um, you know, to the right. Uh, yeah, yes, it would be good for them. No, it wouldn't be good for them to have conversations with them, um, it, help them. Because part of our requirements are that they have to write the service dog into the treatment plan, to the patient's treatment plan. Okay. Um, so so we, we do a lot of work with them. Um, and... Sometimes we'll, you know, we'll, we'll go to the VAs and speak and just do some education. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, we have a lot of people, there's, there's a lot of misinformation out there, unfortunately, that goes, I'm not going to say it's from the VA, but it goes, it goes around the VA, maybe people speaking to other people. Um, a lot of people will say, well, the VA is going to pay for my service dog. Mm-hmm. No, the VA doesn't write much with a mission, a check for a service dog. Mm-hmm. Um, the VA your provider is going to fill out the paperwork that says, yes, I think that they're appropriate for this person or this person is appropriate and for a dog. And then I think it would be, you know, helpful to them. Um, 
it's not putting that provider on the hook for anything. That's another thing we run into. Some of these providers are a little uh, hesitant to fill out the paperwork because they think that if something goes wrong, we're going to come back after them, which is not true. We're just trying to figure out, you know, is, is this service connected? Is, it, is this going to be something that's going to help this person? Um, and then we look at, um, uh, you know, we follow up with them. If we have, if we have an incident, you know, we, we follow up with the VA, um, you know, or their provider and say, hey, you know, it's, it's, a, it's another means of communication for us. Right. Um, if people say, oh, well, my, my provider said, I, my provider wrote me a prescription for a service dog. <laughs> that's nice and it means in, in our mind what that means to us is that your provider should be willing to um, fill out our paperwork that we require but just having your provider write on a piece of paper yes I recommend this person for a service call it doesn't really do anything for us as a program right um, you know so that's that's one thing that happens very very frequently is somehow so my, I, I have a prescription for my provider mm-hmm Okay, um, that's good. That's good. It's a, it's a start, but now you need to fill out our application and get your provider to fill out their portion of the application. Right. Um, but that is, you know, an indication that they are going to work with us. Um, otherwise, we generally just deal with them with the, you know, trying to get the dog a record squared away for, for the veteran. Mm-hmm. Um, it costs us as a program between fifty to $60,000. Wow. To select and train a service dog. Okay. And that is that is the full two-year period, is that correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Gotcha. Well, Brooke, we know that Mutts with a Mission is nationwide. Um, what are your plans for the future? And are there any new and exciting opportunities for your organization? Um, so I always have big plans. <laughs> now putting those plans into and making them come to fruition is a, is a totally different thing. Gotcha. Um, so, <laughs> um, so we are currently trying to expand by moving into a larger facility. Uh, we're, we're currently searching for land so that we can, um, you know, move. We're currently, we, we lease a building, but we're we're ready to have our own property and be able to do build things the way we want them built, things like that. Um, we last year joined, because we were now accredited, we were able to join the uh, Assistance Dogs International Breeding Co-op, um, which means that, so in a nutshell, um, a bunch of service dog programs that are accredited through ADI, we all have the opportunity to join the co-op, and we had dogs throughout the country that, you know, you may host the breeding female um, and, and it's a way for service dog programs to have a, a larger pool that has the genetics to hopefully become a service dog um, to, to select from. So, like, right now we have uh, three females that we received last year to raise for the co-op. Um, they're, they, we won't breed them until they're two, even if they're selected, because they have to go through a selection process to be uh, bred. In, for the co-op, and then um, and then these puppies go nationwide. Um, you know, we get a we get a couple because we are the host. Um, you know, we're gonna we'll host the litter and whelp it out, and things like that, um, and, and raise it for eight weeks. And then some of the puppies will go. I mean, we got a puppy from Washington State last year. We got two from up in Massachusetts. Um, this 
Thursday, I'm actually flying down to recertify um, four of our teams down in Florida, and I'm stopping off at a, a program down in outside of Tampa to pick up two two new puppies for us. Um, so it's, it's an exciting it's exciting times for us as far as you know breeding, starting to breed some of our own dogs um, responsibly, of course. Um, you know what we do what we do this program. Our plan is to breed a dog, have two litters. Um, if you know if she's selected for our program, and then place her as a, a facility dog um, with a police department or um, a fire department um, because she would be a, li- a little older. She'd be about three. Um, we're pre-COVID. We were trying to start a prison program where we have uh, prisoners at a local maximum security prison um, raise puppies for us. It's, there are some programs that are extremely successful in having that and having the prisoners do that. Um, and we were in, in talks with the, the warden that would be the one to make it happen um, and, you know, and, and start getting that through when COVID hit. So we're, we're now we're just waiting for everything to, to calm down and so that we can get back into talks about that. Um, and we just can, we're just going to continue to keep training and, and placing um, quality service dogs that are that are really helpful for their 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 handlers. Well, Burke, we absolutely appreciate your time and support today in sharing with our listening audience um, about Mutz with the Mission and all of the important work that you and your team does and. I think the amount of integrity and the caring that you put forth in raising these animals um, is just incredible. And um, Mike has a few more questions for you, but I just wanted to inject that before we got too far down the road. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. You know, what you guys do with y'all's organization is, is phenomenal. Um, and and I think that, you know, it's just, it's going to, it, it takes all of us. It, it takes, an, you know, a, a community to, to help out these men and women and, and, um, you know, I, I'm really grateful for what, for what y'all do with y'all's program. Cause I know we've worked, uh, um, with, with y'all out here in our area and uh, we have several EOD, uh, former EOD members that are recipients of our dogs as well. So, right. Um, so you have a great organization. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. And, and, um, we we are going to do another event with you um, this year, so we're really happy with uh, the rowing uh, the rowing series with Mutz with the Mission. It's pretty fun. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely, definitely. Brooke, uh, I would like to echo everything that Sherry said, and I am really excited about the future of Mutz with a Mission. Uh, just an incredible organization. We're so glad that you came on today. So, just two quick questions for you. Um, if you could share just one piece of advice for veterans, what would it be? Oh gosh, um, one piece of advice. Um, you're not in it alone. Like no matter how alone you think you are, you're not. There's somebody out there who's either been there or that is going through it, uh, but. There, there's a network of people out there who want to help you. Um, so don't, don't, don't go out alone. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it, you're not underappreciated. You're, there are 
people who appreciate everything you've done, everything um, that you stand for, and, and it never get to the point where you, you feel like you're all alone. It's, it's there. Sometimes you just have to reach out and, and say something. Um, and if you're, if you're a veteran who is, is in a good place, um, look around for somebody who, who might have their head down right now and uh, pick them out. Don't, don't, don't be afraid. I think right now in our society, people are afraid to, to say anything. Um, you know, they're afraid to offend people. Yeah, but we're, we're veterans. We uh, generally speak our mind and, and do what we want anyway. So uh, don't, don't help your body out, even if you don't know them. Uh, stop and think. You know, um, it, it's something that, that we can we can all stop this. Uh, we just have to, to be heads up and be aware and not be afraid to reach out a hand to our fellow veterans and first responders. Absolutely. Uh, love your words. And I remember a long time ago, I was trying to help out a veteran gathering some uh, furniture for him to help him out. He had just moved into an apartment. He didn't have any furniture. And I couldn't turn off the spigot. And I had one uh, gentleman come up to me and he said, you know, I, we want to support our veterans. We just don't know what you want. You have to tell us what you want. So um, great, great advice. So thank you for that. Uh, last thing I have for you is uh, how can someone connect with Mutts with a Mission to learn more? What do, you, what do you say to someone who wants to learn more about your organization? They can go to our website, um, mudswithamission.org. They can, um, they can call us at 757-465-1033. Uh, we have a Facebook page. They can, it's Mutts with a Mission. Um, I, I think we have an Instagram page. Um, I will admit that I am <laughs> I, I am a dog trainer. I am not a computer whiz. I leave that up to my very, very capable staff that does that for me. Um, <laughs> I, just, I, I just try to keep my head he, head off the uh, internet and, and uh, train my dogs. But um, so they can definitely our website's an easy way to reach out that has all that information, or um, they can look us up on on uh, we always call it in our house the Facebook. Gotcha. All right. Well, we will definitely list um, those resources uh, in the write-up for the podcast, uh, Brooke, so folks can actually go to to their favorite site and um, whatever their podcast platform is that they like to use and they can read more. So that will be there. And just to wrap things up and have just a little bit of lighthearted fun, I just want to ask you a couple of questions that are some of your favorites. So um, can you tell us what your favorite food is? So I like a good hamburger. Um, I was an animal science major in college and this might be too much information, but um, but we actually had to take a class in, called meat science. Uh-huh. And so we had to evaluate, uh, so we'd go to barns and evaluate cattle, and then we would butcher them, and then, um, you know, we had to grade them and all that stuff. So I like a good a good quality hamburger. Okay. So what would you yeah. recommend as a, um, like, a, a good yeah, quality of meat? Yeah, what's the best cut meat? of beef you here? Know what I'm I mean? curious. <laughs> <laughs> We're hamburger eaters, oh, too, Brooke. Uh, <laughs> There you go. Like Angus beef. I, we actually Angus. had Scottish Highland cattle when we lived in Maine. Mm. And um, they're really good, too. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Angus it is. Um, all right. What about your favorite holiday? My favorite holiday 
um, is Easter. Okay. So, I mean, it's the, you know, it's the, we're, we're Christians in our household, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, Christmas is when Jesus is born to, to bring, you know, to bring light to the world, but Easter is when, uh, you know, it all comes together, and, and uh, for us, it's all about redemption. Mm-hmm. Yep. I relate to that. That's awesome. All right. And just one more. Um, what is your favorite time of day and why? My, my favorite time of day? Um, hmm. Honestly, so I think it's when, so I have, um, you know, I have personal dogs. And I have fox, two fox terriers. And two of them are allowed to sleep on the bed in, in my bedroom. Um, and so I think it's like right after they get in there and they settle down and they, they snuggle up to you, they figure out where they're going to sleep and they're all snuggled up to you all nice and peaceful and they're actually being good dogs. So I'd say like that period right before you fall asleep because everybody's kind of in their calm and they're, yes. Mm -hmm. Cool. That sounds that sounds cool. Yeah, rest after a long day of work, and uh, it sounds like you guys put in long days. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's worth it, though. It's worth it when, you know, I get my teams when they come back or they'll shoot us an email or something like that saying you know, how, how much they appreciate the work that's put into the dog and, you know, how it's changed their lives or, you know, where maybe they can go out with their family before and they just went out to dinner as a, mm-hmm. an entire family where they hadn't done that for years. But that makes all the all the long hours and days and, and everything makes it absolutely worth it. Right. Well, you are certainly making a difference, and we thank you for that, Brooke. And we are going to sign off with you, but we wish you a very bright and happy 2021 and Hope all of the things that you want to do to expand Mutz with the mission in, in this year will, will happen for you. And, um, hopefully the, the world will open up a little bit more <laughs> as, as we get through yeah, sure. yeah. these first couple of months. But, um, we wish you the very, very best, Brooke, and we'll certainly be in touch. And please also let us know if there's anything we can do for you. Okay, yes, and thank you so much. And like I said, you you guys are incredible, and I I really appreciate this opportunity, and thank you for everything. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks. Have a great day. Yes. Yes, me too. All right. Y'all take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.